appendix part twenty two of the world as will and idea volume two by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine appendix criticism of the kantian philosophy part twenty two in all the cases given and indeed in all conceivable cases the distinction between rational and irrational action runs back to the question whether the motives are abstract conceptions or ideas of perception therefore the explanation which i have given of reason agrees exactly with the use of language at all times and among all peoples a circumstance which will not be regarded as merely accidental or arbitrary but will be seen to arise from the distinction of which every man is conscious of the different faculties of the mind in accordance with which consciousness he speaks though certainly he does not raise it to the distinctness of an abstract definition our ancestors did not make the words without attaching to them a definite meaning in order perhaps that they might lie ready for philosophers who might possibly come centuries after and determine what ought to be thought in connection with them but they denoted by them quite definite conceptions thus the words are no longer unclaimed and to attribute to them an entirely different sense from that which they have hitherto had means to misuse them means to introduce a license in accordance with which every one might use any word in any sense he chose and thus endless confusion would necessarily arise locke has already shown at length that most disagreements in philosophy arise from a false use of words for the sake of illustration just glance for a moment at the shameful misuse which philosophers destitute of thoughts make at the present day of the words substance consciousness truth and many others moreover the utterances and explanations concerning reason of all philosophers of all ages with the exception of the most modern agree no less with my explanation of it than the conceptions which prevail among all nations of that prerogative of man observe what plato in the fourth book of the republic and in innumerable scattered passages calls the logimon or logistikan tis psukis what cicero says in de natura deorum three twenty six through thirty one what leibnitz and locke say upon this in the passages already quoted in the first book there would be no end to the quotations here if one sought to show how all philosophers before kant have spoken of reason in general in my sense although they did not know how to explain its nature with complete definiteness and distinctness by reducing it to one point what was understood by reason shortly before kant's appearance is shown in general by two essays of sulzer in the first volume of his miscellaneous philosophical writings the one entitled analysis of the conception of reason the other on the reciprocal influence of reason and language if on the other hand we read how reason is spoken about in the most recent times through the influence of the kantian error which after him increased like an avalanche we are obliged to assume that the whole of the wise men of antiquity and also all philosophers before kant had absolutely no reason at all for the immediate perceptions intuitions apprehensions presentiments of the reason now discovered were as utterly unknown to them as the sixth sense of the bat is to us 
and as far as i am concerned i must confess that i also in my weakness cannot comprehend or imagine that reason which directly perceives or apprehends or has an intellectual intuition of the supersensible the absolute together with long yarns that accompany it in any other way than as the sixth sense of the bat this however must be said in favour of the invention or discovery of such a reason which at once directly perceives whatever you choose that it is an incomparable expedient for withdrawing oneself from the affair in the easiest manner in the world along with one's favourite ideas in spite of all kant's with their critiques of reason the invention and the reception it has met with do honour to the age thus although what is essential in reason to logimon ephronisis ratio raison vernunft was on the whole and in general rightly understood by all philosophers of all ages though not sharply enough defined nor reduced to one point yet it was not so clear to them what the understanding nous dianoia intellectus esprit verstand is therefore they often confuse it with reason and just on this account they did not attain to a thoroughly complete pure and simple explanation of the nature of the latter with the christian philosophers the conception of reason received an entirely extraneous subsidiary meaning through the opposition of it to revelation starting then from this many are justly of opinion that the knowledge of the duty of virtue is possible from mere reason that is without revelation indeed this aspect of the matter certainly had influence upon kant's exposition and language but this opposition is properly of positive historical significance and is therefore for philosophy a foreign element from which it must keep itself free we might have expected that in his critiques of theoretical and practical reason kant would have started with an exposition of the nature of reason in general and after he had thus defined the genus would have gone on to the explanation of the two species showing how one and the same reason manifests itself in two such different ways and yet by retaining its principal characteristic proves itself to be the same but we find nothing of all this i have already shown how inadequate vacillating and inconsistent are the explanations of the faculty he is criticising which he gives here and there by the way in the critique of pure reason the practical reason appears in the critique of pure reason without any introduction and afterwards stands in the critique specially devoted to itself as something already established no further account of it is given and the use of language of all times and peoples which is treated with contempt and the definitions of the conception given by the greatest of earlier philosophers dare not lift up their voices in general we may conclude from particular passages that kant's opinion amounts to this the knowledge of principles a priori is the essential characteristic of reason since now the knowledge of the ethical significance of action is not of empirical origin it also is an a priori principle and accordingly proceeds from the reason and therefore thus far the reason is practical i have already spoken enough of the incorrectness of this explanation of reason but independently of this how superficial it is and what a want of thoroughness it shows to make use here of the single quality of being independent of experience 
in order to combine the most heterogeneous things while overlooking their most essential and immeasurable difference in other respects for even assuming though we do not admit it that the knowledge of the ethical significance of action springs from an imperative lying in us an unconditioned ought yet how fundamentally different would such an imperative be from those universal forms of knowledge of which in the critique of pure reason kant proves that we are conscious a priori and by virtue of which consciousness we can assert beforehand an unconditioned must valid for all experience possible for us but the difference between this must this necessary form of all objects which is already determined in the subject and that ought of morality is so infinitely great and palpable that the mere fact that they agree in the one particular that neither of them is empirically known may indeed be made use of for the purpose of a witty comparison but not as a philosophical justification for regarding their origin as the same moreover the birthplace of this child of practical reason the absolute ought or the categorical imperative is not in the critique of practical reason but in that of pure reason page one o two eight thirty the birth is violent and is only accomplished by means of the forceps of a therefore which stands boldly and audaciously indeed one might say shamelessly between two propositions which are utterly foreign to each other and have no connection in order to combine them as reason and consequent thus that not merely perceptible but also abstract motives determine us is the proposition from which kant starts expressing it in the following manner not merely what excites that is what affects the senses directly determines human will but we have a power of overcoming the impressions made upon our sensuous appetitive faculty through ideas of that which is itself in a more remote manner useful or hurtful these deliberations as to what is worthy of desire with reference to our whole condition that is as to what is good and useful rest upon reason perfectly right would that he only always spoke so rationally of reason reason therefore he says gives also laws which are imperatives that is objective laws of freedom and say what ought to take place though perhaps it never does take place thus without further authentication the categorical imperative comes into the world in order to rule there with its unconditioned ought a sceptre of wooden iron for in the conception ought there lies always and essentially the reference to threatened punishment or promised reward as a necessary condition and cannot be separated from it without abolishing the conception itself and taking all meaning from it therefore an unconditioned ought is a contradictio in adjecto it was necessary to censure this mistake closely as it is otherwise connected with kant's great service to ethics which consists in this that he has freed ethics from all principles of the world of experience that is from all direct or indirect doctrines of happiness and has shown in a quite special manner that the kingdom of virtue is not of this world this service is all the greater because all ancient philosophers with the single exception of plato thus the peripatetics the stoics and the epicureans sought by very different devices either to make virtue and happiness dependent on each other in accordance with the principle of sufficient reason or to identify them in accordance with the principle of contradiction this charge applies with equal force to all modern philosophers down to kant 
his merit in this respect is therefore very great yet justice demands that we should also remember here first that his exposition and elaboration often does not correspond with the tendency and spirit of his ethics and secondly that even so he is not really the first who separated virtue from all principles of happiness for plato especially in the republic the principal tendency of which is just this expressly teaches that virtue is to be chosen for itself alone even if unhappiness and ignominy are inevitably connected with it still more however christianity preaches a perfectly unselfish virtue which is practised not on account of the reward in a life after death but quite disinterestedly from love to god for works do not justify but only faith which accompanies virtue so to speak as its symptom and therefore appears quite irrespective of reward and of its own accord see luther's de libertate christiana i will not take into account at all the indians in whose sacred books the hope of a reward for our works is everywhere described as the way of darkness which can never lead to blessedness kant's doctrine of virtue however we do not find so pure or rather the exposition remains far behind the spirit of it and indeed falls into inconsistency in his highest good which he afterwards discussed we find virtue united to happiness the ought originally so unconditioned does yet afterwards postulate one condition in order to escape from the inner contradiction with which it is affected and with which it cannot live happiness in the highest good is not indeed really meant to be the motive for virtue yet there it is like a secret article the existence of which reduces all the rest to a mere sham contract it is not really the reward of virtue but yet it is a voluntary gift for which virtue after work accomplished stealthily opens the hand one may convince oneself of this from the critique of practical reason page two twenty three to two sixty six of the fourth or page two sixty four to two ninety five of rosenkrantz's edition the whole of kant's moral theology has also the same tendency and just on this account morality really destroys itself through moral theology for i repeat that all virtue which in any way is practised for the sake of a reward is based upon a prudent methodical far-seeing egoism end of appendix part twenty two recording by expatriate in bangor maine